And uh, we'll be doing so from the book of Acts, and particularly in the sixth chapter, to which I invite you to turn. This is an episode in the life of the church in which the deacons were needed in order for the church to advance. And indeed, they are still needed for that very purpose. Now, it's a familiar account in Acts 6, but one well worth our considering again this morning, as uh, we will be proceeding immediately after the worship service this morning to the ordination of Steve Shields to the office of deacon. To Acts chapter 6, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will open your word to us, that you will speak to us in your word, that you will teach us not only what it means to have deacons who serve you, but also, Father, to see the, the, the uh, importance of this office of service, and then, our Father, to respond with our own lives of service to those who are in need all around us, outside and within. We pray these things, Father, for your glory. Speak for your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve, of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It was at this critical juncture in the advancement of the kingdom of God, of his church, that this office of deacon was instituted. Not, of course, that this kind of ministry had, was unknown among the people of God before. As with the other offices in church government, there were earlier counterparts already in the old epoch. Just as ministers had always borne the responsibility of proclaiming the word of God and leading the people of God in worship, and elders carried the responsibility of ruling them, so also there had been this position among the Levites that looked very much like the role here played by the newly ordained deacons in the church in Jerusalem. Only now the need was even more pressing for their service, so Luke takes the time in this precious short account that he gives us to highlight this choosing of seven godly men to fill this important office of deacon. It is in the tradition of these excellent deacons that our own deacons still stand even to this very day. I say that the need of their service was even more pressing at this time in Jerusalem because something of a shift had taken place. No longer were the civil and church governments so closely related as they had been in the ancient epoch. 
You remember from your Bibles that the state had fulfilled many of these diaconal functions, including the collection of the tithe and the distribution of care for the poor. In fact, it was precisely their failure to carry these things out faithfully, as they should have, that brought God's anger upon his people of old. But now these provisions were no longer available to his church, and new arrangements must be made to provide for the needs of the poor. Well, they were caring for the widows, for the poor, as best they could in those early days after Pentecost, but apparently this care and this service came upon some hard times. Complaints began to be heard from some of the Hellenistic group about their widows being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, just a word about this dispute. There were two kinds of Jews in the early Christian church in Jerusalem in those days. They were the Palestinian Jews who spoke Hebrew and in some cases, no doubt, prided themselves on having remained pure and unspotted from intermingling with uh, the foreign influences. And then there were the Jews who had been away from Jerusalem, some of them for generations. And in fact, they had been gone so long that they never no longer even spoke Aramaic. They were Greek-speaking Jews or Hellenists. Well, unfortunately, as we know, still today there is sometimes, even in the church, even among brothers and sisters, a suspicion because of their differences. Whether those differences be in language or in skin color or in culture or nationality, or even social class. And sometimes that suspicion and that prejudice also comes part and parcel with real consequences. In this case, it seemed to be that the Hellenists' widows were being unfairly treated. And perhaps, indeed, they were. At any rate, the remedy was clear. Men needed to be set apart for this work. Men, men who were not already engaged in the ministry of the word nor by implication already rulers in the church, but men nonetheless of godly character who were recognized by God's people as being worthy of and called to this work of service, of deaconing. So seven men are chosen. Now just as a sidebar here, it's worth our taking note of the fact that all men, all seven of these men's names are Greek names. Was it wisdom? Was it even the, the spirit that animated these Christians to be far more interested and concerned to avoid any division over some protected or vested interest? The Aramaic-speaking Jews, it appears, gives this ministry to Greek-speaking deacons. Now, we could draw any number of observations from the text before us and run with them this morning. We, we could consider how it is that officers are to be selected from among the people of the church by the will of the church, by the people's uh, election, as is demonstrated here. Thomas Witherow, in his classic exposition on biblical church government, makes it his very first principle that the officers were to be chosen by popular election. The officers of the church were chosen by the people. The apostles could have simply appointed men 
decided who were going to be the deacons and put them in place, but instead they called together the whole of the disciples, the multitude, and asked them to select from among themselves these seven men. Or we could easily develop the qualifications of office for a deacon. Some of them listed right here before us in verse 3, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we could spend the rest of the morning developing this and that passage that we considered a couple of weeks ago at our congregational meeting from 1 Timothy 3 on the qualifications of deacons. Or we could consider at length the doctrine of ordination, of setting men apart to church office by the laying out of hands, as we read in verse 6, and we'll witness later on this very morning. We could even spend... The time this morning responding to those who would open up this office of deacon to women, as is becoming more and more popular in our day. But what I want to emphasize today is simply this. The great importance of the office and the work of the deacon to the advancement of the kingdom of God. I would have you consider that importance in two parts. First, consider the importance of the role of the deacon with regard to the ministry of the word. Now, that was the crisis behind the crisis, you know. The first most obvious crisis was that there had risen a dispute between Christians and the distribution, over the distribution of, uh, of care to the widows, whether it had been just to the widows in particular. But the crisis behind it was even deeper. It was, a, it was a crisis, or at least a potential crisis, of worship and the Word. The ministers of that day were apparently busy about this distribution work themselves. They were, they were handling these diaconal tasks themselves and duties while trying also to give attention to prayer, literally the prayer, which, as Dr. Jones pointed out to us in seminary, refers to the worship service, and the word, obviously the preaching and proclaiming of the word in that worship service. Those were the things that, that were to demand the attention of the pastors in the church, the worship and the word, and particularly the word as it was preached in that worship. But the diaconal type concerns must needs be addressed as well. That is why the work of the deacon, you see, is so terribly important to the life of the church and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Deacons free up ministers to do the work that they're supposed to do, to fix their attention on the worship and on the word. Otherwise, and far too easily, the pastors become distracted, their central duties being pushed off to the side while day-to-day concerns about diaconal cases, about the needs inside the congregation and out physically consume their minds and their time. And when that happens, that can only spell disaster for the church. We are terribly dependent upon our ministers to lead the congregation faithfully in the tasks that the Lord has given them to do. We can't afford distracted shepherds in the pulpit. Not when we have Paul saying things to pastors like, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
No, we must not distract our ministers with things that, though they are of terrible importance and moment, of course, in the church, caring for the needy both inside and outside the congregation. I say we must not have ministers who are distracted with such matters that do not belong to their office. I must add, in making that observation, that I am personally encouraged myself by the fact that in some ways Christ Presbyterian Church has followed in the very tracks of Acts 6. I can remember during the first several years of ministry here in Owensboro, I can remember running groceries to people who called the church for help, taking people to the gas station who literally pulled me away from the study and preparation for worship and the word with their needs. I met with landlords and motel owners, all because we did not have active deacons in the church, but the work had to be done. I can remember meetings with people in our own congregation and who were in some sort of need of diaconal help. They were real needs. I could not be neglected and the church be faithful, but neither could I continue to do that work and be faithful to the tasks to which God has called a pastor. It is my pleasure and pride to say that since the Lord has raised up excellent deacons in this congregation who have taken many of those tasks upon themselves so that your pastor is no longer nearly as distracted with them. But, and here's the point, you can see how terribly important it is that deacons remove this real burden from the pastor and from the elders too, whose work it is to rule in the life of the congregation. By taking this work upon themselves, what the deacons do is to serve by extension the advancement of the kingdom of God. And the word of God continued to increase, we read in verse 7. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, the word increased, and, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly precisely because the deacons freed up the ministers to do the work that they must do, that their calling requires of them. But that's not all. And here's the second point. In their own right, the deacons advance the kingdom of God directly by their work of service and ministry. Their care for the needy in Christ's name. By it they become, as it were, the very hands and feet of Christ, the deacons do, who reach out with the healing balm and help in time of need, coming to the aid of men and women and boys and girls who are hurting in some way. You see, the reason why the care of the widows was delegated to the deacons was not because it was an unimportant work, but precisely because it was so important and is so important that it must be taken up by men who make this work their specialty, who pay attention to this work and center and focus on it. And in doing so, the diaconate actually fills out the ministry of the church, which the scripture teaches us must not only consist in the word, but in works, in deeds, 
of love and of mercy. Uh, Through the years, witness uh, has been borne eloquently by history to the work of this diaconate of the deacons in the church and how it bears upon the kingdom even by the reactions it receives. On the one hand, consider with me briefly now what a threat a working diaconate is, truly is, to those who hate the kingdom of God. Did you know that during World War II, we read this in, during our diaconal uh, training, during World War II, when the Netherlands were occupied by the Germans, the deacons of the Dutch Reformed Church busied themselves with the care of those who were persecuted. My Dutch instructor, Debbie, and my Dutch instructor during college was a little girl in one of those homes in Holland who hid Jews away in their attic. The deacons of the church secretly supplied refuge and aid and food to those who were held captive, prisoners of the oppression of that regime. The uh, Germans, for that reason, decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Listen to how the Reformed Synod in Holland responded on July 17, 1941. Resolved, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on diaconia lays hands on worship. The Germans back down. See how a working diaconate, an active group of deacons, can raise such ire from the enemy. And as we know, the enemy is not of flesh and blood, but Satan and his minions, you know, lose ground every day when faithful deacons apply themselves to the task they have been given and fulfill the duties of their office. But consider with me on the other hand now the more positive effect of a faithful diaconate. It was demonstrated wonderfully uh, in the church in which I served as an intern in Tacoma, Washington, Faith Presbyterian Church. Virtually every Sunday, every Wednesday evening, people were coming to church for help of some kind or another, usually some kind of financial help. And literally, thousands of dollars went out of that church every month to landlords and utility companies and so on. But listen to this letter that came to Tacoma from Faribault, Minnesota, a small city south of Minneapolis. Dear Faith Presbyterian Church, my name is Amy Harton. I came to your church for financial assistance about four years ago. At the time, I remember I was of the Baha'i faith, and I had been sober for nine months. I came to meet with the deacons. I made it quite clear that I had no intention or even interest in becoming a Christian. I thought that because of this, they would surely turn me down and turn me away. But that is most certainly not what happened. They agreed to pay my rent in full. I was amazed and thought, surely this was the greatest gift from God. The Lord had worked through them and allowed me to stay in my house. However, 
four years later, I realized that that alone was not the greatest gift I received that night. Before I left them, that is the deacons, I, I, uh, they gave me a Bible, a Bible that stayed on the shelf for three years. When I picked up that book after so long, I read what they had written in the cover and then started to read the rest. I have to tell you, from that moment I picked it up after three years, my life began to change. I read my Bible daily. I want you to know that your generosity and love has guided me to a place in my life and relationship with God that I could never have imagined. I have found a wonderful church here in Minnesota and have had the wonderful opportunity to help out in Sunday school. And I will be baptized next Sunday. I was asked to share my story of conversion with the congregation a couple of weeks ago, and I'm including that with this letter. I wanted to share it with you as your church has been so instrumental in this transformation. Again, I want to thank you for sharing God's grace with me. God bless you. Much love and gratitude, Amy Harton. P.S. You might also be interested to know that I have now been sober just under five years. Now, that letter was wonderful enough, of course, but as she said, she had sent also a, an account of her coming to Christ as she delivered it in her church, St. John's Lutheran. It fills out the details wonderfully and I think demonstrates what a powerful work is done every day by faithful deacons in Christian churches. She writes, I was raised in a very religious family, though I was not Christian. Now when people ask me how I decided to be a Christian or what led me to this belief, I've decided that of, uh, how I decided to be a Christian and what led me to this belief, I have a difficult time trying to explain it. There have been so many God moments along this journey that it is incredible, and, most, and those types of things are very difficult for me to explain, but I will try my best. About four years ago, I was going through a very difficult and low time in my life. During this time, I lost my job and as a result could not pay my rent. I called United Way and they gave me phone numbers of places to call. I called all but one and none of them could help. At this point, I went to a relative and asked if I could stay with her family and they turned me down. I had no other choice but to call this one last place. This place was a church. Faith Presbyterian Church. I called and made an appointment to meet with the deacons. I must tell you, I was terrified. I knew what they would say, and I knew they would not help, but I had no other option but to try, so I went. And on the way there, I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would be there and would hold my hand. I was terrified because my understanding of Christians was that they thought anyone who didn't believe in God the way they did was surely going to end up in hell, and why would this church want to help someone like that? They wouldn't. I wanted so bad for them just to love and not be judgmental. Well, I got there and sat in this room talking to these deacons, and sure enough, the Bible and Jesus came up. They asked what I believe, and I told them, and they quoted the Bible saying that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And of course, I got defensive. They told me that they were not there to argue with me, but that this was their job. And they wouldn't be faithful to their task if they didn't tell me this, if they didn't try to give me this message. 
this calmed me down and a great deal. Somehow I understood this and I knew God was sitting right there beside me, helping me through this meeting. So when we got done talking, I was asked to leave so they could talk among themselves. I left the room and I knew what they would say. They couldn't help either. They wouldn't help either. I went back into the room and when they were ready for me, and still I knew, but they floored me by saying that they had decided to pay my rent for me. I couldn't believe it. I had made it perfectly clear to them that I was in no way interested in converting to their belief, but they were still willing to help. They were willing to help a non-Christian. I was literally stunned. As they were wrapping up, they gave me a Bible, and I went home and put the Bible somewhere where it was not touched for some years later. Over the next few years, and especially this past year, I started questioning my faith that I had grown up with. During this time, I moved here to Minnesota and got very close to a Christian woman, actually a St. John's member, Patty Ostvold, whom I developed an incredible amount of respect for and most of all trust in. I had finally found a person I could voice my fears and questions to, and so I did. This led me finally, after three years, to pick up that Bible that the church had given me. This is the Bible. As I opened it, I saw that they had written in the cover the deacons had, Amy, please read John chapter 3, page 921, and John 14, 6, page 936. Then keep going. May you know the joy of sin forgiven by the Lord Jesus. I tell you, I did just that. I read what they had suggested and then continued to read. I couldn't put it down. It really seemed like the best book I had ever read. I started listening to Christian radio and watching certain evangelical programs. Eventually, I was led to pastors Crippen and Johnson, who have given so freely of their time. And they, in turn, led me to study with Ruth Hansen, which is just incredible and has been so helpful in answering my questions. Today, even though it has taken four years... The love shown by that church in Washington has led me to the belief that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for me, and not only for me, but for all of us. I am truly forgiven and truly loved by God, and I gotta say, there is no time in my life. There was a time in my life, rather, when I didn't know that. He has come into my heart and made me whole. He continues to speak to me through the Bible, other people, through St. John's and through the Spirit. All I have to do is listen. Thanks. Peace be with you all. That, dear flock, is what happens when a diaconate, when deacons, faithful deacons, take hold with both hands the work they've been called and equipped by God to do. Just as it was in the days of old, so it is today. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Amen.